0: We have, of course, been considering throughout Acts chapter 7, Stephen's response. Stephen, one of the early disciples of Christ in the book of Acts, chosen to serve as one of the first deacons and also one who does some teaching and ministry, and called in the providence of God to be the first Christian martyr called to lay down his life for the cause of Christ, and he's been responding to the charges that have been brought up against him before the, the Sanhedrin, which of course is the religious elite, the religious leadership of the nation of Israel, that all the important religious decisions of the nation were determined by this Sanhedrin, this group of 70 men. And these charges have been brought As we saw back in Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, that they had secretly induced men to say, We've heard him, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. In verse 13 of the same chapter, they put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law, speaking against the temple and the law of God as given in the Old Testament. We've heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. So, those are the charges that have been leveled blasphemies against God, against Moses and the law, against the temple. And what we find in return to that, that Stephen articulates. Or proves to be a biblically sound, he does not ignore the Old Testament. He goes to the Old Testament Scriptures. He does not go to the Old Testament to refute them. He goes to the Old Testament to explain them. And so he gives this biblically sound, irrefutable understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures as the Word of God and also his appreciation for that revelation of God given to us. And Stephen, we see, understands his defense here as more than a personal defense. He doesn't spend a great deal of time dealing with the specifics of what he said, but he does spend a great deal of time addressing the charges that have been leveled in a biblical context. Previously, in his response, which we've considered in the, in the last few weeks, by insinuation, he begins an indictment against these very men who have brought these charges against him and against the Sanhedrin. Now, in this final portion, he makes application of his defense. And he brings brings the, the full weight of the, the full consequences of their actions in regard to their treatment of Jesus. He brings that weight upon them. And so what he in effect does is he completely turns the tables here. Whereas, in their thinking, Stephen is the one who is on trial. Stephen is the one who is called to give an account, called to make a defense of what's been placed before them regarding these charges, and Stephen completely turns those tables on them and exposes their wickedness, calling them to give an account for their sin, and again, particularly, in regard to their treatment of Jesus, whom they crucified. So begin reading with me here for our text today. Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 51. And we're going from 51 through the end of the chapter, verse 60. You men who are stiff-necked, and uncircumcised in heart. It sounds like Romans 2, doesn't it? <laughs> uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, Actually, the Greek indicates is as they were hearing this. It doesn't, it's not when he got to the end, but this is the process as Stephen has been going through this defense and then he gets to these words here. As they are hearing this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they covered their ears and they rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Having considered what's recorded for us in the book of Acts about Stephen, which is, if you remember, it's only basically in two chapters Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 6, where Stephen is introduced. As one of those who was chosen to serve in, if it wasn't the formal office of a deacon, at least it was a diaconal type of a ministry, the ministry of serving, of seeing to it that the the widows, the Greek widows, were properly attended to as they should be. And we noted when we had Stephen revealed to us in Acts chapter 6, notice the kind of a man he's described as being. In Acts chapter 6, verse 3, in the search for these men to be appointed for this work, it was required that they be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And so we rightfully would assume that Stephen would fit that qualification of full of the Spirit and of wisdom. In Acts chapter 6, verse 5, it says, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So man's described as full of faith. Then in verse 8 of Acts chapter 6, describing Stephen, it says, Stephen, full of grace and power. And then in verse 10, it says that those who were opposing him, that they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So a man certainly quite capable of defending the faith a man filled with the Spirit, with grace, with power, with wisdom. And so we would look at the life of Stephen, again, what small portion we have of it recorded here, and regard him as one who is faithful to his calling. Faithful to his calling of gospel proclamation. Sharing the message of Jesus as Lord Christ. He understood that as his duty and especially in the context of where they were in the first century church when in the midst of of a Jewish society they should have been awaiting the Christ. They should have have recognized Jesus as the Christ and they did not. So Stephen and the apostles come proclaiming this one Jesus as Lord, as God and as Christ and certainly Stephen is faithful to that calling. and We see the response that he gives in chapter 7 which we have been working through section by section over the last several weeks as a, as a model of certainly a portion of his teaching that these things in chapter 7 of Acts would be consistent with the message that he teaches. Well, with Stephen, we are also stewards of the gospel. And Paul tells us that as stewards we have a we have a responsibility placed upon us, and it is this as stewards that we are to be found faithful. God has entrusted to us. God has entrusted to the church the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. And we are to be faithful in the proclamation, faithful faithful in the teaching and the preaching of that message. From our text here this morning, recognizing Stephen as one who faithfully advances the gospel message of Jesus Christ, wants to see what are some of the sure companions that when the gospel goes forth, that we might look for these things to be there. Companions of faithful gospel, proclamation. Now, if you've looked in your bulletin at the insert and you've seen my outline and you've with great fear and trepidation seen I have four points this week instead of three, I assure you it will be within a reasonable length of time that I'm not going to add twenty minutes just because I have a fourth point, but we trust that what we see here in this text will be of great encouragement to us as those who have been entrusted with the gospel if you are a child of god today if jesus is your lord and your savior you have been entrusted with that gospel and so in the faithful teaching and sharing and proclaiming of that gospel what might we expect to be the companions of the gospel going forth. First of all, we see this in our text. We see that there is the confrontation with the sinner. There is the confrontation with the sinner as the gospel is acclaimed, as the gospel is taught and advanced. Stephen, no doubt, as he is giving this response and seeing these people listening to him we could rest assured that Stephen is able to read his audience and you can do that now I can tell when you're tracking and I can tell when you're not <laughs> when I'm preaching and I've been in places where preaching you can you can just see folks they're not with you and it's not so much it's not so much they can't understand it's just they don't agree with what you say I've been there too You can tell, and no doubt as Stephen stood before this Sanhedrin, he got a read on his hearers, and a man, understandably so, a man that is described as filled with the Spirit of God, sensing their resistance to his message, and again, not just his message, this is God's message. This is the message of God. This is the message that's being revealed through the Old Testament Scriptures. And he knew that they would understand it, that they would embrace it, and that Jesus Christ is the one that is being revealed throughout the Old Testaments. But they would have none of that. And so Stephen unleashes in the, in the style of the Old Testament prophets, the writing prophets which we have in the Old Testament Scriptures you know, sometimes we read those things and they're blunt and they're bold and they're straightforward with their message and it's an attack and it's an affront to the lives of those who would hear so in that prophetic style and with that clarity he levels this series of charges against him against them as they hear Look with me here in verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked. Now this is a nice way to talk to people, isn't it? You men who are stiff-necked. You who are unbending. Some translations may use the word obstinate. You who are obstinate as opposed to what we might look for a spirit of humility, a spirit of being teachable, of being willing to to hear and to consider what's been said. No. They're stiff. They're obstinate. They're unbending. Doesn't matter what you say, we'll have nothing of it. We're not here. To determine whether you're innocent or guilty, we're here because you are guilty. And we're going to close the case here around you. It's the language that's used in the Old Testament scriptures where times the children of Israel are referred to as those who are obstinate, those who are stiff necked. Exodus chapter 32, verse 9 where there God Himself speaks to the children of Israel as being this obstinate, stiff-necked people. Then He goes on here in our text. You mean they're stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You need to remember here He's speaking to a Jewish group of men. A Jewish group of men who were all bore the mark of the Abrahamic covenant, which was circumcision, took great pride in the fact that they were descendants of Abraham. And he says to these, "You're uncircumcised in heart, in ears. In other words, you have nothing more than the outward sign." Of God's covenant people. But there is nothing. Of the inward work of God. In your heart. So much focus. So much so much they would emphasize about the externals, about what it meant to be part of the covenant people, part of the covenant community, those who bear the mark of God, as we read in Romans chapter 2, very appropriate that we read that this morning, that those who would insist upon that, well, we know the laws of God, we're, we're teachers of righteousness, all these things you'd hold to, and where does Paul go with that? Well, you who teach these things, are you guilty of the very things you teach? So is the case here. Those who place such a great emphasis upon the the external marks of being part of the people of God, Paul, Stephen here, emphasizing the fact there's nothing, there's nothing of God in you. There's no work of God. There's been no changing of the heart. Yet You're still these stiff-necked, these obstinate people. It's just getting warmed up, isn't it? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit just as your Father did. In other words, you who would claim to be the people of God, you are acting in direct opposition to God, resisting God the Spirit of God, opposing God's intent, just like the preceding generations of your fathers did before you. And what's the evidence? Verse 52, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? You remember that? It's there to be read. Go to the Old Testament Scriptures. Study the prophets of God, and what do you find? We find that the prophets of God were persecuted by those who existed, that they were the people of God. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. Which brings us again to the reality that the message of the Old Testament was not just a message for that day, that there was a message of the Righteous One who was yet to come. And as they proclaimed this message regarding this Messiah, regarding this Christ, Stephen goes on to say, this Righteous One whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Well, who is this Righteous One? Who is it? Well, a man who's speaking forth by the power of the Spirit of God says it's this. It's Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. And just like your forefathers persecuted and killed those who spoke of Christ, you, you have become the betrayers. In what way? Well, your representative was Judas. But you have been a betrayer of this Jesus, of this righteous one, and you are guilty of his murder. Well, wait a minute, we didn't kill him, the Romans did that, only because the Romans would not allow the Jewish people to to execute someone, even if they were guilty of, against the laws of of Jewish law, worthy, worthy of death according to Jewish law, the Romans would not allow them to execute capital punishment. So, what did they do? They placed him, placed Jesus before Pilate. They placed him before the civil government of Rome and had him murdered. Then, verse 53 you who received the law, speaking here of the Jewish people. You who received the law as ordained by angels, and we just know that there was, that there were the presence of angels as the law of God was given to Moses in the Old Testament. He received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. You had the law. You knew what God required of you, but you had no interest in obeying God's law. This is a very strong language for a people who prided themselves in their heritage. And a people who prided themselves in what we would recognize as being true revelation of the true God. We understand that, that what they had given to them as revealed in the Old Testament was God's revelation. The problem was, as Paul tells in the book of Romans, that it was not mixed with faith. There was no heart, there was no desire, no willingness to live by the law of God, by the revealed will of God, and no interest in it. So they rejected it and lived by their own standards, their own message. So the gospel message then is this, at its essence. The gospel message at its essence is the person and it is the work of Jesus Christ and one's response to him. That's in a nutshell of what Stephen says. It's what you've done to Jesus. Have become his betrayers and his murderers. That is an indictment against you. This is the evidence of your blindness. This is the evidence of your hardness of heart that you've crucified the righteous one. You've crucified your own Messiah. So therefore, you stand guilty of these things. You stand charged as being a stiff-necked and obstinate people of those resisting the Spirit of God, those who are lawbreakers. You have the law, but you don't obey it. You have no desire to obey the the Word of God. So we see here that where the Gospel goes forth, where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed that there is the confrontation with the sinner the sinner must be made aware of his sin that's the gospel but there's a addressing the issue of sin and so we proclaim is faithfully proclaim the gospel we advance and we proclaim God's righteous standard, that God's demand for absolute perfection, and that's the law, incidentally. Here is keeping the Old Testament law. Here is keeping God's law, is that you walk perfectly without sin. That's what God demands. But we don't just teach a righteous standard. We also, we also teach our own guilt, that we have violated God's righteous standard, that we all stand guilty, that we look at the law of God and it'd be an utter fool to look at the law of God and say, okay, I can do that. But to look at the law of God and allow it to have its effect and a harsh and to say, oh God, have mercy upon me, I'm guilty of all these things and much worse. That's the work of the law. That men are not saved by their ability to obey the law perfectly because none can do it. But rather, we are condemned by the law. We are declared guilty of God's standard. We are simply exposed for what we are. But we advance this righteous standard of God. We teach the law of God that that reveals men, that reveals our sin, that brings us to a point of absolute and utter bankruptcy before God, of absolute helplessness. That's the gospel. Now we do not proclaim the gospel, we do not proclaim God's righteous standard in a finger-pointing, judgmental manner but simply as God's judgment on all sin. We're all in the same boat, folks. We're all guilty. Hopelessly, helplessly guilty and condemned by the law of God. Some may take offense. Some people don't like to be told they're sinners. Some people don't like to have their sin pointed out to you. The fact of the matter is, I don't like it either. I think I'm pretty much like most of you here. I don't like it when somebody points out our sin. But listen, if that sin is going to be the cause of my eternal judgment and damnation, and I have a chance of being delivered from that sin, I want to have my sin pointed out. It's the best thing that anyone could ever do for me. What a mercy of God. What a mercy of God that His gospel as it goes forth, that it exposes our sin, shows us our absolute and utter helplessness before Him. Some may take offense and some may become defensive, but some, by the grace and the work of the Spirit of God within them, will sense the weight of this guilt before God And they come to him through the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting, turning away from that sin, and embracing Jesus as their Lord and as their God. But there must be an awakening regarding one's sin Against God. Now, there are many in our day who would, under the guise of Christianity, do everything in the world to go around that. That you don't tell people that they're sinners, that you've got to make them feel good about themselves. That's not the gospel. The gospel, the word gospel, literally means good news. But you don't understand nor appreciate the good news until you understand the reality of the bad news. And that is, apart from Christ, you're separated hopelessly from God and will be judged by Him. So there is a confrontation with the sinner as the gospel is acclaimed. We teach the righteous standard of God. And we teach that we've all fallen short, that all are guilty of violating God's law, and therefore deserving of death, deserving of the judgment of God. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. We've earned it. But that there is great mercy. Great mercy for those who will take flight to Christ. Those who will take flight to Jesus and be forgiven for their sin. Secondly, we see here that where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, there is a confirmation of a separation as the gospel is applied. The confirmation of a separation. We see here in these two groups a very stark contrast. A contrast conveyed between Stephen and those here who are in opposition to him. Verse 54. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him. Contrast with, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man stand at the right hand of God. Contrast with, verse 57. And they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. Driving him out of his city, they began stoning him. Verse 59. And they went on stoning Stephen. Contrast with, as he called upon the name of the Lord. What a contrast! See, there is a great separation of all of humanity. There are those who are the people of God and there are those who are still the enemies of God. Now just make sure you understand, we all started out in this camp. We all started out as enemies of God by birth because we are all descendants of Adam. Adam is our father. And when Adam sinned, his sin contaminated the entire human race. So as a descendant of Adam, you bear that same sinful nature that Adam took upon himself. But God in his mercy and his grace brings the people out of this camp of his enemies and he calls them unto himself. And they're his people people of God, those who have been regenerated, born again by the Spirit of God. It's not that this group of people is better than this group. It's that God in His grace chose to save some. That's why. These people aren't nicer looking. These people don't have more potential. These people are God in His sovereign grace said, I choose you to spare you. That's the grace of God. Don't look to try to try to find the distinction between those who are, who are the people of God and those who are still the enemies of God in and of themselves. There's no distinction. The distinction is only the grace of God. That's the difference. So we see here in this text, Stephen is a man of God, a man described in verse 55, full of the Holy Spirit. A man who is... Under the influence, under the control of the Spirit of God. And look at this man. He is a man that is marked by peace. He is a man that is marked by courage. He is a man that is marked by love. And he is a man that is granted a glance into heaven itself. He is a man that is confident in the eternal saving power of his Lord. Verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Contrast that with the Sanhedrin here. The Sanhedrin has heard the words of Stephen, and as I mentioned already, there are some who will respond to the confrontation of sin, some who are going to be offended and take offense with that. And that's exactly what happened here. The Sanhedrin. Thea says that they are described as being cut to the quick. Cut to the quick. In other words, sawn in two. Cut in two. As regards to their heart. But this The teaching that Stephen has given in this confrontation with their sin that's come before them, it's come for them and it's been like a saw to their heart. It's been painful and they've hated it. To contrast that with the work of the Spirit of God in the hearts of those at Pentecost when Peter preached the message at Pentecost and there the Scripture says that they were not cut to the quick. It says that they were pierced to the heart. That the word of God penetrated into the inside of them. They were pierced by the word of God rather than feeling its cutting, sawing edge. And they began to gnash their teeth. You get the contrast here? He got a man that's filled with the Spirit of God, peace, courage, love. And here are these people on the other side. They're so angry, they're gnashing their teeth at him. You know, just gritting their teeth together. Suppressing rage. You ever done that? Yeah, you have. Some of you. You've been so mad, all you do is just sit there it's like you got locked on. That's what they're doing. They are so infuriated with Stephen. They are suppressing their rage, but it's showing, I can imagine he sees that, that their their teeth are just gnashing against each other. And then this group, they are driven by this rage, this mob rage. When Stephen, here is this man marked by the peace of God, and by the Spirit of God, is given an opportunity to see the heavens open before him. What was it, a vision? It was a gift of the Spirit of God for him and also for us. But primarily for him, that he looked and he saw, and he said, he tells him what he said, I see the Son of Man seated at the right. You know what he's saying? I see this Jesus whom you betrayed, whom you murdered by crucifying him. I see this Jesus in heaven, the place of authority, standing at the right hand of God. And that did it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back, and this group that was with an impulse, they could stay in their seats no longer. They arose with one impulse, and they came. They just got Stephen, and they forced him out, forced him out of the town, and began to stone and throwing rocks at him, just driven by this mob rage to violence. Now, up until this point. They had at least attempted to make some appearance of following legal formalities, but folks, it's gone now. That when a man was condemned to death, if he was found to be guilty of crimes worthy of death, he was supposed to be given at least one more day. Uh-uh. All propriety is dropped here. This is a group that is driven by hatred, by anger, and by rage, and so they drive him out of the city. They are determined at this point to be rid of Stephen just as they had gotten rid of Jesus. We got rid of him. We'll take care of you too. see, we must expect that faithfulness to gospel proclamation will ultimately lead to division. The work of the church... The work of preaching the gospel is not to try to bring the world to unity. That's not our work. Because we recognize the only true unity that is possible is of those with all of mankind will one day do is for those who bow the knee before Jesus Christ. There's only unity within that camp. And so we don't expect, in fact, we understand that in the most cases, as the gospel is preached, as the gospel goes forth, as the gospel confronts men with their sin, and as you preach a gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ alone, salvation through the person and work of Christ alone, that most people will absolutely reject that message. And that causes division. There will always be division. Have we forgotten the words of Jesus? Look, look with me, Luke, Luke chapter 12. <clears throat> you know, some people have this view of Jesus and what he came to do. This syrupy, sentimental Jesus. Luke chapter 12, verse 51 and following. Just back up to verse 49. Jesus speaking here. I've come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled! I have a baptism to undergo, and how I, how distressed I am until it's accomplished! Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? Wait a minute! Isn't Jesus the Prince of Peace? Absolutely. He brings peace to the hearts of those who bow before him. But he does not bring peace to the earth for all men to live peacefully one with another by some rejecting and some responding to the gospel. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. Verse 52, Luke chapter 12. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What's he saying here? That the most natural affections and relationships will come to a dividing where the gospel penetrates. For there are those in the contest of even what should be the closest associations, family. That when the gospel comes in and the gospel captures the hearts of some of those, there will be a division. It cannot help it. And we pray and hope that the God in his mercy would save them all, but he doesn't always. But there is a division that comes, and we see the confirmation here of this separation between the people of God and the enemies of God. And the difference, remember, is not that some are better and smarter, it's the grace of God that says, I choose you to be mine. I choose you to spare you from my wrath and to pour out my blessing and my grace upon you. So how do I get from being an enemy and do the people of God? How do I do that? If it's all of God, the only choice is this. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's the only option. God, be merciful to me. We cannot expect to maintain peace, and I mean genuine peace at its deepest level, where those who are the enemies of God, we are certainly called as the church. As the people of God to live at peace with all men, in as much as it is possible, the gospel compromise is not possible. And if to maintain peace with the world we compromise the gospel, we have betrayed our responsibility, and we are not proclaiming the gospel of salvation. It is not God's gospel. The gospel of Lord Jesus Christ will divide. Thirdly, we see the companions of faithful proclamation of the gospel is this conformity to the Savior as the gospel is adorned. Conformity to the Savior as the gospel is adorned. Once the gospel takes root in the heart of the individual, it has a way of making its presence known, becomes visible. That the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, as a person is born again by the Spirit of God, it's not something that lives within us invisibly that people are absolutely oblivious of. Doesn't do that. But it begins to conform us to the Savior. Romans eight twenty nine, where there Paul says that we are predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, God's predetermined plan for His people is that we become more and more like Christ in the ways that we think, in the things that we love, and in the things that we do. That our minds are being renewed, our affections are directed toward things that are eternal, toward things of heaven, and the things that we do are rooted in a desire to honor and to glorify God. Simply put, When a person is born again by the Spirit of God, their mind, their affections, and their will are all touched. A person is converted. Their will is different. Their mind is different. And their affections are different. The things that you do are different. The things that you love are different. And the way that you think is different. It's not perfect. And it's not a completed process that we are, as Paul talks about, that we are our minds are being renewed, the continual renewing of our minds. And called to set our affections upon things above, not on things of earth, because, as we sing, there is that promise within our heart to wander from the one we love, and we can love other things, but we will not love these things supremely, and we will not leave Christ absolutely. But the work of the Spirit of God as an individual that is transformed. You cannot help but see it here in Stephen's martyrdom. You see Christ here, don't you? We see it in his courageous, unwavering devotion to proclaiming truth. Listen, did Jesus ever deviate from that? Did Jesus ever deviate proclamation of truth to take the heat off? Nope. In fact, there were a few times Jesus might as much heat on. People kind of draw it to him, and he'd say something to turn people off. Jesus was looking for people where the Spirit of God was moving in their hearts. And if there was a work of God in their hearts, they stick with him, thick and thin. And we see In Stephen, just as we saw in Jesus, his courageous, unwavering devotion to proclaiming the truth at any cost. What did it cost Jesus? A few times they would have killed Jesus prior than the time they did. Except it wasn't time, right? You remember that? They were ready to kill him, ready to throw him off a cliff, and he just kind of went through the crowd. (laughs) It wasn't time. Hated and rejected for his message and the testimony of his life. Why get rid of Stephen? Because his very presence condemns them. And there we see most clearly, verse 60, we see his forgiving spirit with his dying breath. Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Does that sound familiar? Jesus on the cross, Father forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Conformity to the person of Christ. See this is the gospel as it is adorned, it is it is worn and demonstrated in the life of the believer, a life that has been transformed by regeneration. There's been a work of the Spirit of God in the heart of the individual. It's not that a person has walked down an aisle, it's not that a person has prayed a prayer, it's not that a person has done this or that, it's not that a person has been baptized, it's not that a person has joined the church, it's not any of these things, it's that the Spirit of God has changed the individual from the inside out. That is conversion. See, I mentioned last week in Sunday school, Christianity is the only religion you cannot join by simply willing to do it. You can be a Muslim. but say, I want to be a Muslim. And you're on your way. You don't do that in Christianity. You can't be a Christian by saying, I want to be a Christian. You're a Christian by the Spirit of God changing you from the inside out. Regeneration, new birth that's Christianity the problem that we have here in our western culture is that we have made Christianity something else we've made Christianity a social standing we've made Christianity being part of a church we've made Christianity this and this and this and the reality is there's been no work of the Spirit of God and so you look across evangelicalism in our country and you see churches absolutely packed with people who have never been born again by the Spirit of God and they're convinced that they're going to heaven because they've made a decision. Conformity to Christ. That when Christ is in you, when the Spirit of God transforms you, it finds its way out. That is the work that God has called us for us to do. That is His predestined plan for us to conform us to Christ. And if it's not happening, He's not doing what He said He predetermined to do. It is a life that is empowered by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit doing this work that we use the big theological word called sanctification. That's what it is. That's all it is. Sanctification. Made more and more like Christ. Enabled more and more to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. That's sanctification. It's not me deciding what I did with Baradendia last week. It is my dependence upon the Spirit of God to do this work within me. And I'm not passive in sanctification. I'm working and I'm striving and I'm fighting against sin as well. But I recognize all my fighting is in vain apart from the Spirit of God within me. Only the Spirit of God can bring, can produce sanctification. Only the Spirit of God can make us more like Christ. Let me ask you, is the gospel of the indwelling, transforming Spirit evident in you? What's the proof that you're truly born again by the Spirit of God? I was at Grand Corps a few weeks ago and I just told the people there, I said, you know, I ask you, what is your hope of heaven? If your answer begins with, because I've done, you better be careful. You're in trouble. What's your hope of heaven? Why do you have any conference or assure us that, that you are a child of God? And if your answer begins with, because I did, or I've done, you better be careful and you better examine. Because if it's not what God has done, it's not conversion, whatever you want to call it. It's not regeneration. And I had a lady come up to me after and she said, you've scared me. I said, what do you mean? She said, I'm, just, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. And I know some people would criticize a message that makes believers doubt their own salvation. I don't know where this woman is. I don't know if she's a believer or not. I don't know what the Lord's done in our heart, and I talked to her briefly there. But I know this. I would much rather make 20 Christians begin to struggle and doubt salvation than have one person falsely believe they've been converted when they haven't been. And I'll do all I can to shake that tree. Because your lack of assurance will not keep you out of heaven. Your false assurance that you're going to heaven will. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I one day will be. But neither am I what I used to be. That's the testimony of sanctification. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I one day will be. But neither am I what I used to be, an ungodly rebel against God. Lord, make us more like your Son. And finally, we see of those companions of faithful gospel proclamation is comfort for the saints. As the gospel is accomplished. Folks, the gospel isn't done. Sometimes we think of the gospel as well. The gospel is to get saved. We receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's the gospel. No, it's not. Now, did you not catch when we read in Romans chapter 2 when Paul is talking about his gospel? You know what he says? He talks, about, he talks about the day of judgment according to my gospel. So the gospel is not just about getting converted. The gospel is about conversion and life and eternity. And so that we see that when the gospel goes forth, that there's great comfort for the saint as the gospel is accomplished, as the gospel runs its full course, and the full course of the gospel is this, it brings us into eternity, into the presence of God. It addresses eternal issues. It addresses the reality of our continued existence beyond the grave. And so we have here in Stephen's last moments, filled with verse 55, filled with the Spirit of God that is granted a view into the very presence of God, and there stands His Lord and His Savior, Jesus. There He is. Consider what a great comfort and assurance that His faith, that His message is true. But not only is that a gift there for Stephen, folks, that's a gift for us as well, because we recognize that the Scriptures are given to us by the Spirit of God, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And here we have a record of the heavens being opened. Let me just tell you, if there's any question in your mind, Christ is there. If the heavens were to be opened right here before us, and they're not, except Christ should return, if they were to be, Jesus is there. And he is Lord. He's there. So this is a gift to all of us as the people of God that we read of the reality of Jesus' exalted and the ultimate goal of the gospel is to bring us into God's presence. So the gospel is a message of deliverance. Listen, the message, a message of deliverance from certain things, yes. It is a message of deliverance from sin. It is a message of deliverance from the penalty from the judgments of sin. But the gospel is also a message of deliverance to certain things. And ultimately, it is a message of being delivered to him in the glorious presence of God forever through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's great comfort here for the believer that all uncertainty regarding life after death is gone. We shouldn't have it anyway without this, but just in case... You want a little bit of a certainty about that? There's that there is legitimacy in the message that we proclaim. That there is a Christ, there's Jesus who is exalted at the right hand of God. Here it is. The heavens have been opened for us before Stephen. Stephen's testimony to us today is: I see the Son of Man, Jesus, seated at the right hand of glory heaven is assured and we are most welcome there if we are Christ's so in this assurance we can rejoice to be with the Lord in his benevolent presence but is there any here today that you're without such comfort you don't know what's going to happen when you die And so you have no comfort of heaven. No comfort of going to be with the Lord. In fact, the thought of Jesus being on the throne of, should absolutely terrify you. Because if He is not your Lord and your Savior One before you, before whom you have bowed your knee, confessed with your tongue, He is my Lord. I yield my heart and my life to Jesus Christ. Then rest assured that one day, when you do see Him, when you do see Him, you will then bow the knee and confess with your tongue, He is my Lord, He is my God, and He is my Judge that condemns me to a Christless eternity. See, the question is not whether or not you're going to bow to Jesus. The question is when. Are you going to bow to Him now? When the message to you is repent from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or shall you bow before him in eternity? When the message will be, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Go to the place that is prepared for the devil and his angels. So the gospel accomplished for the people of God, the hope of heaven. The... And hope not in the sense of modern-day usage of wishful thinking. Hope in the biblical usage of we're sure of these things, assured of these things. Let us be faithful in proclaiming this gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for the work of your Spirit. Lord, except that You work in any of our hearts, we are all completely undone. So help us. I thank You that You know every heart here today. That we are laid bare before You; nothing is hidden. That we're like an open book. Lord, I ask You to apply Your Word today, as You'd be pleased, and we would ask that, as You'd be pleased to bring comfort to your people, to bring salvation to those who may not be, to, to bring assurance to those who are in doubt. Lord, accomplish what you will. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.